lot of duties this morning. You know, all of our other interim people are gone now as we await the arrival of our new pastor. And uh, all the elders, other elders are out of town today, too. Jimmy's off to Beirut, of all places, with his mission organization. I think he's soon heading to Estonia. So a lot of things fell to Bill Carson this morning, and you're forgiven for forgetting a few things. So we, we understand that. My wife and I served as missionaries for a while in Alaska, where I was the um, director of a Christian camp and retreat center. And I remember one summer, we're getting ready for the summer Christian camping season for the youth, and it's counselor training week, and our young counselors were arriving from all over the United States. Most of them were Bible college students. And I remember one girl asked me a question during the training week. She said, I think she was thinking about missionary service. And she said, what are you looking for in a missionary? What are some good missionary qualities? And I think she was surprised at how quickly I answered her and at at what I answered her. I said, well, it's no different than any Christian who wants to serve the Lord. We're all missionaries in that sense. But what I'm looking for are people who are willing to be inconvenienced. And I think that kind of puzzled her. We're going to see in our, our passage today that sometimes Jesus answered a question by telling a story. So I told her a story. I said, one summer out here, a young girl, a young camper, fell out of the top bunk onto the concrete floor of her cabin and broke her arm. We weren't sure what else she broke, but it was the middle of the night. You have to understand that our camp was off the road system. It was remotely located, boat access only. So we had to get her out two o'clock in the morning, by boat, open skiff, high seas, pitch dark, to the end of the road where we had an ambulance waiting for her. I said, if you're going to serve Christ out here this summer, you're going to have all kinds of things happen like that. Very inconvenient, very out of the ordinary, way out of your comfort zone. You need to be willing to be inconvenienced. So, uh, and I was thinking about that as I think about where we are at SFC and our timeline in history. We've just come through kind of a rough couple of years, a little setback maybe. We've lost our pastor, a new one's on the way, but I, th- I think there's a sense of excitement now. We've got a new start where I kind of pumped up uh, a new young man coming by his own words. He says, I'm a millennial. Uh, and I know Stapleton has a lot of millennial age people. I hope to reach out to them. But he also recognizes that he has to reach out to all generations and people beyond Stapleton. If you look at our community, what's around us within a few miles, it's not just Stapleton. It's all kinds of different people groups, different cultures, different races. How ready are we to be inconvenienced maybe to reach some of those people that we're not used to normally dealing with. I have a friend here in Denver from my old forestry days who is retired now, and he has become the CEO of Salvation Army Colorado. And I don't know what you know about Salvation Army. You probably remember the bell ringers at Christmas time, you know, standing in front of the big box stores or department stores. There's a lot more to Salvation Army than that. 
I had an opportunity to work with a lot of Salvation Army chaplains and who were working with Alaska Native people. They did very good work. Salvation Army was founded by a woman named Catherine Booth in England. And it was said that wherever Catherine Booth went, humanity went to hear her. And one time she went off to another town in England to give a program. And the person who wrote about it said it was attended by, well, what we would call undesirables, publicans and sinners, rough-looking crowd. Many of them responded to the message. And that evening, Mrs. Booth went to the home of one of the well-to-do families in the town, and the lady of the house said, said to her, Oh, Mrs. Booth, I was at that meeting. How terrible it was. Catherine said, What do you mean? And she said, Oh, I looked at the faces of those poor people. I don't think I shall be able to sleep tonight. <clears throat> and Catherine said, Well, don't you know them? Certainly not. Well, that's interesting, she said. I didn't bring them with me from London. They're your neighbors. For that woman to reach out to that group of people would not have been very convenient for her. She felt they were beneath her. They weren't of her status. And she wasn't willing to be inconvenienced to share the gospel with them. The Jews, Jewish people in Jesus' day had a similar problem. They had a hard time dealing with non-Jews. They had a hard time dealing with questionable people. And along comes Jesus and begins to stir things up. He's eating with publicans and sinners, tax collectors. He's having theological conversations with women who are of questionable character. He's telling stories where sometimes these questionable people are the good guys in the story. He's kind of shaking things up. And that's what we're going to see in our passage today as we look at, at Luke chapter 10. He tells another story that kind of, kind of shakes things up. I think we have... Um, he, he told some parables, for example, that were scandalous to the Jews. I think we, have, we face two problems today as we look at this passage. And the first one is... We're looking at a story that was told 2,000 years ago in a different country, different culture, different customs, different style of dress, different way of speaking, different idioms that are used. And so we're going to have to put ourselves in the shoes of a Jewish person listening to this conversation 2,000 years ago. And the other problem we face is I call it familiarity. This is such a well-known story. You've all heard it before. Even non-Christians know this story. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. We all know about the Good Samaritan. And if we're not careful, we might approach this from sort of an arrogant standpoint. Oh, I've, I've been there. I've read this. I've studied this. I know the teaching there. And we need to be careful about that. I think if there's one thing that Dale Flanders demonstrated to us in his interim time here, he could take a very familiar passage of Scripture as he went through the book of Mark. And I don't know about you, but I got new insights every time, every sermon he gave, even those real common, well-known stories, the feeding of the 5,000, the healings, other things. So there's new teaching, new insight from every familiar story. So here's our task today. You need to put yourself in the shoes, or maybe I should say sandals, of a first century Jewish person 
who's listening to a conversation between, between two religious leaders, a religious lawyer and a rabbi named Jesus, and somehow try to overcome those two uh, problems that I just mentioned. This is a parable that you've heard before, as I mentioned, but remember what parables are. Parables are a figure of speech in narrative form. And the purpose, well, a parable doesn't have to be true, but it has to convey a truth. And its purpose is to get you to examine something about your attitude or your behavior and see if you need to change. So keep that in mind as we read this familiar passage in Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. Put him to the test. And we'll talk about that lawyer in just a minute, what what that means. Saying, teacher, referring to Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit neighbor as yourself? And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. All right, who's this lawyer? Don't think trial lawyer, corporate lawyer. This lawyer is uh, probably a subgroup of the Pharisees. And his job is to look at the Old Testament law specifically the first five books of the Old Testament. We call it the Pentateuch, books of the law. His job is to look at how it was exactly worded to the people of the day and then kind of run that through centuries of rabbinical teaching to see how it might apply to the people he was dealing with at that time. Now, is that a good job or a bad job? That's a good job. You're sitting there listening to this. This man is your teacher. You have a lot of respect for him. Sometimes we think, oh, Pharisees, bad guys. Jesus often condemned the Pharisees, and for good reason. They got very legalistic. They added some things to the law. They they misinterpreted the law, and Jesus was critical of that. But to you, listening to this, this is the good guy. You're you're hoping he, he does well here in this conversation. It's Jesus over here who's the rebel, He's going around the country saying things about Jesus that have never been said before, or about God that have never been said before. He's doing things in the name of God that have never been done before. He's stirring things up. 
And so from this lawyer's perspective, he's probably thinking, when this guy comes to town, I need to straighten him out. I need to expose him. So the Bible says he, he asked him a question to test him. Let's, get, let's set this straight. And so he asked a question, a theological question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Make no mistake, that's not a trivial question. I mean, he could have asked some trivial stuff about the law. He could have talked about dietary law or, or festivals or sacrifices or things like that. No, he got right to the heart of the matter. What must I do to inherit eternal life? So the Jewish people had this thought. They were a special people. They were God's chosen people. They were God's children. They would inherit someday a land, a special place where God dwelt. So the question is, what must I do to be in the presence of God eternally? No trivial question. Actually, that's the question we all ask when we approach Christianity. What must I do to have eternal life? Good question. Now, there's a protocol for these kinds of discussions, and you're listening to this. Normally... A question is asked, an answer is given, and then the debate starts and the finer points of the discussion take place. But Jesus doesn't play by the rules. <clears throat> he says, law? That's like asking a guy from Alaska, tell me about Alaska. Off we go, you know. <clears throat> oh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and so on, etc. What the lawyer did was go back to the law and he put together the Shema. Dale talked about that a couple months ago. Deuteronomy 6 was thought to have represented the first five of the Ten Commandments, the vertical part, our relationship with God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Teen, which was said to summarize the second five commandments. The, the horizontal relationship we have with other people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Good answer. You're very proud of your lawyer. But Jesus doesn't play by the rules. He says, good answer. Do this and you shall live. You've answered correctly. Wait a minute. You know, this is not much of a theological discussion. This is not a seminary debate. What, what's going on here? And you're getting worried because your lawyer hasn't scored. He, he was testing Jesus, and what he needed was a box that he could check off. Oh, I've done that. But Jesus said, you answered correctly. So he's got to ask another question now, and he does it, the Bible says, to justify himself. So he says, okay, who is my neighbor? Well, the rabbis had this neighbor thing all figured out. A very simple definition. If you're... Your neighbor is another Jewish person, a person who's born Jewish. Now, if you weren't born Jewish, but you converted to Judaism, uh, there was a difference of opinion on that, whether they were your neighbor or not. Some rabbis said yes, some said no. So they weren't sure. But if you weren't Jewish at all, weren't your neighbor. So it was really kind of a question of not inclusion, but exclusion. In effect, the the lawyer is saying, who don't I have to love? Okay, so now Jesus responds and tells a story 
a parable. And you're pretty disgusted with him. Oh, for heaven's sakes, Jesus, don't go telling stories. Get back on track. But at least you understand the territory. You know the scene. It's the Jericho Road. And you go down from Jerusalem, literally down to Jericho. It's an 18 or 20 mile stretch of highway. It drops 2,300 feet in elevation. It's hot down there in Jericho. But more importantly, it's a bad road. It has a bad reputation. A lot of robbers on that road. You know, there are streets in Denver that I don't particularly like to drive on at night. This would have been one of them. And sure enough, an unidentified man in this story gets robbed, gets beaten up, stripped of his clothing. And he's laying there, I think the Bible says, half dead. That's an an idiom in New Testament language for meaning unconscious. He's unconscious. There he is. Now, you're Jewish. You're listening to this. You live in Palestine. But you know there's a lot of other people living there too. There's a lot of different people groups in the Mediterranean Basin at this time. There are Romans living there. There are Egyptians living there. There are Syrians living there. But you have a couple of ways of knowing if if a stranger is Jewish or not, i.e. you have to love them or not. One is by the way they dress. Each people group had their own distinctive style of dress. And that's not uncommon. I mean, I drive around Denver and I see people dressed differently and I realize... They come from a different part of the world. But we got a problem because our victim here, laying alongside the road, unconscious, is stripped. He doesn't have any clothes on. We can't tell, by the way, he's dressed whether he's Jewish or not. The second way we tell is by the way they speak. They have, Jewish people had accents. We can tell people kind of where they're from or what, what people group they belong to by the way they speak. A couple of weeks ago, we had a uh, visitor here at SFC on a Sunday. He was a businessman here for a seminar. He wanted to go to church and worship Sunday morning. I talked to him for about 15 seconds and realized he's not from around here. He was from Mississippi. And he had that deep, good old southern accent. And I said, well, you're, you're not from Denver, are you? Or, or at least not originally. And he said, no, no, I'm from the deep south. Well, same thing in, in Israel. You could tell what, what group somebody belonged to by their speech. But we got a problem again. This victim alongside the road is unconscious. He can't speak. We don't know how, he, we can't look at his clothes, we can't hear him talk. We don't know if we have to love him or not. He's just a man in need. Well, there's a progression of people that come by in this story. And we need to pay careful attention to that. We need to look at the verses very carefully. Who's the first to come by? A priest. A Jewish priest. A Jewish priest had a lot of laws, uh, regulations they had to live by. Very strict. These, These regulations were designed to keep them holy, keep them clean. They didn't want to be unclean. And one of the strict rules was they could have no contact with a dead person. And again, the rabbis and priests had this all figured out. There were stages of death. There was the preparing-to-die stage. There was the half-dead stage, or unconscious stage. There was the fully-dead stage. But to a priest, the half-dead stage 
the unconscious stage was the same as being dead. You never knew if an unconscious person was going to revive or not. So you had to treat them as a dead person. One professor I heard said the priest would have to follow the four-cubit rule. You know what a cubit is? Cubit was the distance between a grown man's elbow and the tip of his fingers, about a foot and a half, 18 inches on an average man. So the priest would come along, and he would have to stay four cubits away from this man, six feet. And apparently that's what he did. He's out of there. He moved right on. All right, who's next to come by? A Jewish Levite. You know about the Levites? For simplicity's sake, let's call them assistant priest. Uh, they, they did the temple service. They handled the sacrificial stuff. They handled the blood. They were gatekeepers to keep, keep the non-Jewish people out of the temple and so forth. He's the Levite. Now, they also had some strict rules, not quite as strict as the, the priest. He couldn't, touch, couldn't have contact with a dead person. If you had contact with a dead person, you're a priest or a Levite, the cleansing process is arduous. I just read about it in Leviticus. It takes like a week of cleansing. But they probably didn't have the four-cubit rule. Because notice your, your verse. It says he went up to the place where the man was. The, the implication is he went up and looked at this unconscious person. And you can just see the debate going through his mind. Hmm, I wonder if he's Jewish or not. I can't tell. I wonder if I should do something or not. Oh, that, that could raise all kinds of complications. I, I better not get involved. And he left. All right. Now, we've had a Jewish priest go by. We've had a Jewish Levite go by. Who would you expect to be the third person in the story that Jesus is telling? I would think, okay, it's probably time for a normal Jewish person to come by, a normal Jewish man. But no. I can't think of a of a more politically incorrect person that Jesus could have used in this story to come by as, an, as number three. A despicable Samaritan. I don't know if you know about the Samaritans, but it's kind of complicated how they came about. They moved into the Israel during the captivity period, and the Jews considered them, Orthodox Jews considered them half-breed Jews. And you did not like them. I mean, you prayed every day if you're an Orthodox Jew that no Samaritan entered the kingdom. It's just, uh, they, they didn't do things right. They didn't even worship in Jerusalem. They worshiped off on Mount Gerizim. They just had all kinds of problems, and you didn't like them. Uh, if you lived down in, Judea, uh, in Judah, in southern Palestine, and you had to go up to Galilee, northern Palestine, and you, Samaria's right in the way, you'd go around it rather than go through there. And that's why the story is so interesting in John chapter 4 where Jesus said, I had to take the disciples through Samaria. Well, you know they didn't want to be there, expanding their comfort zones. And then to make matters worse, he stops and talks to a Samaritan woman at the well who of his questionable reputation. I mean, you can just hear the disciples, get us out of here. We don't belong here. In this story, it's a Samaritan who comes by and renders aid. Jewish or not? It says he tended to his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. Oil would loosen up uh, callous skin, dried skin. Wine serves as an antiseptic. Then he put him on his animal and took him to the inn. Jewish people didn't stay in inns unless they had to. 
Hospitality was so highly valued in that culture that you always... But where is a Samaritan going to go with an unidentified man? He has no choice but to take him to an inn. He paid in advance. Probably have to at inns like that. Then he made arrangements for follow-up. And so then Jesus asked a question. Which of these three proved to be the neighbor? You talk about a man who, who was inconvenienced. Look what the Samaritan did. Notice the difference in the questions that the, man, the lawyer asked back in verse 29. And who is my neighbor? And the question Jesus asked here in verse 36. Who proved to be the neighbor? And the lawyer got it right. I mean, what else could he say? I sometimes wish that Jesus gave us follow-up information about these stories and these incidents. I remember the purpose of a parable is to get us to examine ourselves to see if we need to change our behavior, our attitude. Did the lawyer really change? We don't know. Who proved to be the neighbor? Who was really willing to be inconvenienced? Okay, what are the implications of the story for us? Personally, I think it's very hard teaching. I may not like some of the people I'm supposed to be a neighbor to, reach out to. You know, I, I kind of have a entitlement mindset sometimes about these things. I want to choose who I serve and who I don't serve. I want to look out over the crowd and say, oh, you're safe. You, yeah, I don't know about. But you're all my neighbors. And I don't mean just in the, the big things like different races, different cultures. I mean little things in our life. I mean, I, let me use myself as an example. Okay, I'm in my 70s. Sometimes I have a hard time relating to millennials because they're coming from a whole different experience than I am. Uh, I don't even understand their music. But, uh, you know, their, their work background is different. In my generation, we graduated from college, we interviewed with a company or an organization, agency, and we stayed with them for 35 years and retired. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. You know, and so it doesn't give us much to talk about sometimes. I don't relate to that, but they're my neighbor, and they need Christ just as much as I do. I grew up in the country, a very rural area, and most of my career was spent in very remote parts of North America, most of it in Alaska. And so I moved to, Den I mean, the, the, the town I lived in, I had to drive 251 miles to find my first traffic light. And then I moved to Denver, you know, and I found myself not relating very well to city folk. And they didn't relate to me. But we're neighbors. We need each other. And we need to serve one another. I guess I would ask you to think about, as we close, the, the person who was inconvenienced the most for us. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Here he is sitting in heaven at the right hand of God the Father, a perfect environment, surrounded by angelic beings. And what did he do? 
He gave that up for a while to come down here among sinful human beings, to live among us, to be tempted like we are, to pay the ultimate sacrifice for us. Why did he do that? The bulletin insert, I put some next steps. The first one has to do with that very thing. Maybe you need to talk to somebody here or have prayer about receiving Jesus Christ as Savior. We want you to inherit eternal life. Convenienced to share the gospel in this community, maybe with people who aren't like you. You know, our churches, SFC is off to do some mission trips this summer. We're going to Mexico, maybe to Estonia. Those people are not like us, but they're our neighbors, and they need, they need Jesus. And then I ask you on there, think about, are you more like the priest or the Levite or the Samaritan? The priest looked at things from a legalistic, structured point of view. I can't get involved in that. That's not my duty. That's not my job. I'm out of here. The Levite had a little bit more flexibility. He might have considered, wonder if there's something I should do here. Oh, all sorts of complications with that. Maybe, maybe I'll just go on, not get involved. Are you like the Samaritan? There's a key word in the description of the Samaritan, one that you should pay attention to. The Bible says, when he came to the man, he had compassion. Some translations say took pity on. The Greek word is compassion. And compassion, as used in the New Testament, always involves action. It's not just feeling sorry for somebody. It's doing something about it. He had compassion. Are you ready to be inconvenienced as we step forward at Stapleton Fellowship Church? Next week, Bill's going to be preaching about moving forward. And that means you might have to be inconvenienced. Let's pray.